Night comes for all of us. Far from the splendors of star-spangled glory, singing a full-throated anthem with its dazzling lights, the night can also be a house of silence, of loss, of waiting. Plunged into the darkness of doubt, the shame of retreat, the misery of betrayal, a womb from which we must be delivered. In times like these, even fishers of men can be satisfied again with nets full of mushed and carp when they can catch them. And sunfish, too, no one's favorite dish. And despite its sunny name, brings no dawn to our darkest nights, where we can see nothing beyond the edge of our boat. But even way out here, we are not beyond love. Nights like these can be a house furnished with things that only the darkness has eyes to see. The brief passage onto vacant seas where our desperation opens possibilities on the backside of our boats. The oceans are a kind of night, darkness churning beneath the surface, a cosmos teeming with mystery that flashes and darts unseen glimmering hopes. Then a voice from shore comes out of the dark, who knows the dark, has returned from it, and is part of it, the voice of one who was slain before us, speaking in the language of home, as comforting as fire, as nourishing as a home-cooked meal, inviting us to cast our nets beyond what we can see, where the weave of us is suddenly, miraculously filled, hauling from the depths whole galaxies of answers from their wet heavens. And just like that, we are drawn back to ourselves, hauled in from our own depths, delivered onto shores of dawn, reminded of a time when we believed we could walk on water. We leap from our boats drenched in mystery, and our lives take part in the great song of belonging, singing our allegiance to everything, with everything, dazzling with life dancing and singing to the mystery and love that is making us all. Hear the word of the Lord from John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, 
but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net into the boat because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the, the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, after about a hundred meters. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter jumped back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he, had ra he was raised from the dead. Then they had finished, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus take, said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And from Revelations 5. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Hear the word of the Lord. You're now ready to sing a new song. And yet, 
It's the same old thing. And new is there. The newness of the gospel is wrapped up, I believe, in the capacity for forgiveness. The good news of Jesus is really just a success story until you factor in, until you see, until the kaleidoscope turns in such a way that you see forgiveness at the root of the gospel. That what the gospel ultimately calls us to is not necessarily abundant living, although Jesus that language, not necessarily success, although there's nothing wrong with success, I suppose. What the gospel calls us to, and again, is forgiveness. Our first reading this morning from John 21, the mission of forgiveness in action. It's Jesus modeling what he wants his his soon-to-be apostles to be about. Seven disciples get sick and tired in the weeks after the resurrection. And so they get in a boat and they that's what they know how to do. They left Andrew because yeah, he's a little squirrely, you know. Peter's brother. And they left Matthew, the tax collector, who can't figure anything out except figures. They left those guys on the shore. And some of them go fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee. Casting their nets. No success. Quiet waters. Boring. And they have utterly failed. They failed at catching fish and making a living or even just having something to eat. <clears throat> they have failed so badly they can't even recognize from 100 meters out, from, you know, 300 yards. They can hardly recognize who's on the shore, yelling at them, saying, Hey, guys, over here! And Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. Now, we don't know the orientation of the boat. <clears throat> so we don't know, you know, which way the boat was facing. And, and I don't want to over-spiritualize that, <clears throat> that concept of casting your net on the other side. Except to say this. <clears throat> what, what Jesus called the disciples to do in that moment was get out of the box that they were in. <clears throat> The definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And Jesus says to his disciples, get out of your rut. Do it differently. And, and in doing so, he, he right then and there demonstrates the power of forgiveness. 
Because in our face-to-face -face relationships, when somebody wrongs us, when somebody gets in our face, we are not inclined to be forgetting people. We are inclined to push back and be defensive and hunker down. I don't know, maybe I'm just being overly confessional this morning. Maybe this doesn't apply to any of you and it's all about me. But that's how I am. And Jesus says, wait a second. Throw your net on the other side. Do it differently this time. Forgive instead of become defensive. And so they get new instructions and, of course, meet with stunning success. 153 fishes, we read. I mean, it was such a big catch, they audited it. They, they made sure they knew how many because that was going to be a good morning at the marketplace. An intuitive recognition from John and then Peter. That's Jesus on the shore. And Peter impetuously jumps in the water, not walking this time, but swimming, and discovers that Jesus had prepared for them, that there was a charcoal fire already underway, that there was bread warming on one corner and fish broiling in the center, that breakfast was ready. And the disciples eat with Jesus. And we don't have that story recorded in John. We don't have that conversation recorded. You can only imagine. This is the third time that Jesus has appeared post-resurrection to his disciples. The first one, of course, was the shock and awe of his appearing. The second one uh, was Thomas getting the business about not believing. And now this intimate breakfast setting on the seashore. The, uh, the church of the primacy of Peter sits there now. Uh, a lovely chapel from the 18th century that uh, inside has a large rock as an altar, which is supposedly the place where Jesus sat with his disciples over breakfast. And out in the garden of this chapel is a statue of Jesus and Peter having this multi-layered conversation. The other six disciples apparently wander off or go off to the marketplace to sell the fish and Jesus and Peter stick around and, and Jesus begins to ask Peter, do you love me? Well, Jesus, of course, of course I do. What kind of question is that? Says the guy who a week before had denied Jesus three times. Part of, part of forgiveness is having memory. We, uh, we think forgiving and forgetting is the way we need to go. But forgiveness remembers. Remembers the wrong done. Not in a festering sort of way, but in a way it goes, yeah, I blew it. I was wrong. I denied Jesus. And they have this conversation three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And P 
Peter is restored, not in an official capacity. There's no mitre that gets put on his head, no triple iron crown that Jesus gives him. But the relationship between the risen Christ and his most impetuous disciple is made whole in that moment, in that conversation. Now, a happy ending would be, and Peter went on to great success as a preacher and led a megachurch in Jerusalem and uh, you know, took on a great mission endeavor and the gospel spread around the world. That's not how Jesus ends the conversation with Peter. John has Jesus ending the conversation with Peter with, when you're old, you're not even going to be able to dress yourself. And you're going to go places you don't want to go. The story doesn't finish well, Peter. Jesus simply says, follow me. He doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't gloss over it, doesn't, doesn't put it into context, doesn't say, well, you're going to have a great life for the next 30 years and then the last five will suck. <laughs> he, he says, this is the way it's going to end. It's not going to be pretty. Follow me. Not very seeker sensitive. Not very success oriented. But that's Jesus' invitation to those who he has forgiven. Follow me in spite of the obstacles. Follow me because of the obstacles. Not because they're going to go away, but because you're going to need a guide through the obstacles that are to come. When you can't dress yourself and you're taken where you don't want to go, you're going to need me. So follow me. That story's bracketed in John's writing by the glorious praise, the doxology of Revelation 5. Revelation begins with seven practical letters to seven very different congregations. Revelation is, is a letter to is a circular letter to churches. Hey, church, this is what you're doing well, this is what you're not doing so well. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's an invitation to discipleship and obedience and faithfulness, even in the midst of challenges and stress. That's how the first three chapters begin. Chapters four and five then pivot in, in a scene that only Roman citizens could really get their heads around, a scene of, of, of an imperial gathering, a, a great collection of all of the leaders, all of, all of the emperors, all of Caesar's followers. Only this time it is God, the king, and in language that a, a first century Jew would understand. Chapter 4 is full of kingly language. This theophany, this appearance of God that makes everybody go, yes. God's at work. Yes, we celebrate that. Isn't it wonderful? That's not all to this vision. Chapter 5 pivots 
to what we would call a Christophany. The presence of Jesus. Not as a king, not as Caesar, but to the image of which Caesar could never be. A lamb. An innocent, little, ugly, furry, smelly lamb. And in that vision of God is king, Christ is lamb, Alpha and Omega, A to Z, beginning and end. All that can be considered has been. And worthy is the response of the people of God. This this revelation of Jesus is revealed in a scroll, which is fitting for he who is the Logos, the Word, become flesh who dwelt among us. And it is a lamb who was slain, but who apparently is risen, because this slain lamb, this lamb who appears as if slain, is animated with life. It is a lamb who is not wandering in a pasture somewhere, but a lamb who has been enthroned. A a, a total mind-blowing kind of image for a first century Roman to get their head around a a lamb on the throne? First century Christians would remember Emperor Caliglia making a horse into a god. A lamb on the throne? A little weird. But it's Jesus who was slain, who is risen, who is coming again and is worthy of worship. And so there is this great choral response that Laverne read for us. Chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. There's an opening circle, an opening chorus. Thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands. This myriad of followers who, who sing in a circle of praise. And as they sing this, in this circle of praise, all of a sudden, The vision of John the Revelator is that all creation joins in that song of praise. It's not just thousands upon thousands and ten thousand upon ten thousands of human beings singing the praise. Now the crickets are chirping and the stones are crying out and the ox and ass are singing the praise of the Lamb slain who is risen was cut. And the, and the chapter ends with the four elders, the magistrates of heaven, the ones who stand around the king to protect and to advise and to shepherd the king. And they say, Amen. And they fall down in worship. Because praise is the refrain of forgiveness. We, in our Western Christianity, we, we, we reverse the polarities. We think if we, just, if we just praise the Lord, then our lives will be happy and we'll be able to forgive people we don't like. It's not how it works. John the Revelator, John the Gospel writer, makes clear 
that the hard, difficult, heavy, burdensome work of forgiveness leads us into a life of doxology and praise. Gospel, gospel mission is a mission of forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, all creation rejoices. The Lamb, more adored and more powerful than any Caesar could be, is the center of our life of forgiveness and the object of our praise. And so together these texts teach us some things. He teaches first that forgiveness establishes our worship and praise. Pastorally, I think it's important when people come to me and say, I'm just not feeling it. I just, I'm, just not, I'm just not feeling the love of God. I'm not feeling His Spirit moving in my heart. I always want to ask, who needs forgiveness in your life? Who denied you? Who caused your crucifixion and your pain? And what are you going to do about that? Forgiveness, though, requires of us mutual, uh, missional relationships. We, we simply can't forgive at a distance. There are those in our lives, those who have abused, those who have committed violence, those, those, who have, those who have acted in such horrific ways, that we may never be in a place of being able to forgive and move on. And there we simply release to the grace of God and sometimes to the judgment of God. And we live with that. Because what forgiveness is ultimately about is restoration. It's missional. It creates new relationship that reinvigorates the bonds of connection. That's the purpose of forgiveness. If you just want to move on from whoever has victimized you, do so. But the call of the gospel, the invitation of the gospel, the risk of the gospel is to establish that missional relationship that reattaches us, that rebonds us to one another. It's hard work, and it doesn't always happen, and it isn't easy. But when it does, 10,000 sing, and the crickets chirp too. Mission of forgiveness and the life of praise, though, don't guarantee us a happy, successful life. All it guarantees us is a place with the Lamb. All we're guaranteed as followers of Jesus is to be in His presence. So if you're here today thinking, this Christianity thing, this is... It's going to make my life successful. I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life is going to be good because I'm a Jesus follower. You haven't read the Gospels very well. Life will probably be somewhat less than that. Has it been for me? We are guaranteed a place with the Lamb. Not much else. And Jesus still has the audacity to say, follow me anyway.
because it's the Lamb who demonstrates that missional vocation of forgiveness. When we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, what we see is one who has forgiven. Forgiven the world in his, in his death and resurrection. Broken the power of evil to bind us and harm us and damage us. And we've seen the example of Jesus sitting down with, with the guy who hurt him the worst on the worst night of his life. Nothing Pilate said or did, nothing Herod said or did, nothing the Jewish Sanhedrin said or did hurt Jesus as much. Not even Judas's betrayal hurt as much as Jesus did. And Jesus sat down with him over a breakfast and said, do you love me? Well, then feed my sheep. And so the Lamb calls us to act for the restoration of creation as part and parcel of the life of praise. You see, restoration and forgiveness isn't just a relationship between human beings. It's a relationship we have with the whole of creation. All creation needs to be restored. All creation needs to forgive us for the abuse that we've committed. And so we become a people attuned to living in the humility of being the one being asked, do you love me? Jesus asks us, do you love me? And Jesus' creation asks, do you love me? And our answers sometimes get bifurcated. We, oh, we love Jesus, but his creation, we'll kind of, we'll, we'll dink around with that. That's ours after all, right? It's his, it's the lambs. When we foul up the world, we're messing with Jesus' house. Think about the implications of that. And so this morning, some questions for us to reflect on. Who, who needs forgiveness? Who needs forgiveness? We, we often think that, you know, a, a sermon about forgiveness is about who I need to forgive. But just as important, who needs to forgive us? I put the national flags of Palestine and Bangladesh on the screen because I've been thinking a lot about both places recently, having just returned from Bethlehem and leaving tonight for Dhaka, where they tell me the heat index this morning is 109. <laughs> 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 I love James Q, but it's going to be a long week. <laughs> but think about those two places in the world, Palestine, where, where one out of every three of our tax dollars that go to foreign aid go to Israel, largely so that they can control Palestinians and eradicate them from the land. 
Think about Bangladesh, land of river deltas, and how climate change is encroaching on their capacities to farm and feed themselves. And we sit with our first world problems and have empty-headed debates about whether climate change is man-made or just one of the natural cycles of nature while the seawater rushes in on river deltas in Bangladesh and destroys cropland by the thousands of hectares in a year. Who needs forgiveness? It's person who's wronged me need forgiveness? Yes, I need to know how to forgive those folks. But you know what? All of us in this room need to be forgiven. We all carry some burden of responsibility for the world as it is. And I don't have any public policy answers from the right or the left to prescribe today. And if I did, all I'd do is anger half of you. I'm just saying that in a world as big as ours, surely the millions of people that live in Bangladesh and Palestine can have justice, can have land where they can grow crops and feed their families. They can live in cities with safety. They can make a living, ply their trade just like we expect to. Is that too much to ask in our world? And sometimes we need for the world that we've largely helped to create and shape that denies all of the things we value, hope and justice and love and peace and shalom to the rest of the world. So how does, secondly, call us to a mission of forgiveness and a life of praise with the rest of the world? Knows the answer to that. How does the Lamb call you and me? What, what is the vocation that we've been called to? How do we live out the mission of forgiveness and the life of praise in our lives? Are. And what is the new song that the Lamb wants to teach us? Surely the lyrics of that song include Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. One more thing. Michael Gorman, in his great book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. I just love the title of that book. But he writes this, human beings, apparently, even apparently Christians, too often want an almighty deity who will rule the universal power, preferably on their terms, with forces necessary. But understanding the reality of the as how all misperceptions of divine power and justice. It is the faithful death of the slaughtered lamb 
that is both the source and shape of our salvation. We, our, our, our musicology, our, our, our musical rhetoric is often praise of a God who can solve all of our problems. And I believe that God can solve all of our problems. But we're awfully limited in the problems we bring to God to solve. We're not sure we want him to fix the problems that we're responsible for. We'd rather he rule on our side with almighty power and retributive justice. But that's not how the lamb works. The lamb who was slain, that's the source and shape of our salvation. When we give up our power, our privilege, our prestige, and we open ourselves to the needs of the world, we will be transformed. I remember when James Kiskew was about to arrive. I had a conversation with several of you who would ask me, where is Bangladesh? I've heard of it before. It's a really poor place, right? Yeah. yeah. By the end of James' 11 months with us, we all knew where Bangladesh was. Our eyes had been opened to a different world. And our eyes had been opened to a people, the Santal people, who are an ethnic minority in Bangladesh, but who live with entrepreneurial spirit and drive. And we found places of connection with this young man. He wasn't just a foreigner who didn't understand our ways, although he would ride his bike on the 60 freeway. Like, <laughs> what are you thinking, James? <clears throat> he, he got us. And for the most part, we got him. And we realized Bangladesh is not so far away. We've been thrown into understanding Palestinians through Elizabeth Malone and her boyfriend, Leas, through Kristen and Lindsay and I going there and experiencing it. The world is bigger than the place we've been called to. And although we love this place and we've been called to tend to this part of God's kingdom. There isn't a wall built around it that keeps the rest of the world out. There is instead for us the Lamb's invitation to join a chorus of 10,000 that also then raise up the rest of creation to sing the doxology. Worthy is the Lamb. Thanks be to God for his word.